Hi, everyone. It's, it's Daryl. I want to thank you for listening to this sermon on the podcast. I never could have imagined that these messages I preached to rooms years and decades ago would serve many people beyond those rooms. I love Jesus and his word, and it is a great joy to be able to share what he has taught me with you. This year, the team and I want to continue to serve disciples of Jesus around the world by sharing more sermons, old and new, as well as new resources that the Lord has impressed on my heart to give away. It has always been our desire to give all of this away for free. But for those of you who would want to and are able to partner to help us give away more this year, you would be welcome to join us. You can do so at the website the team has set up, daryljohnson.ca donate. You can also leave a message for us there and tell us what has impacted you personally. Simply hit the Contact Us button to do that. We'd love to be able to hear from you. I would especially like to know what is ministering to you from the sermons. Thank you again for listening. May God bless you, and I hope you enjoyed today's message. Well, hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Daryl Johnson Podcast. Continuing in this series, Making Maturing Disciples of Christ, Daryl preaches today out of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, sharing on the theme of us being living sacrifices to God. Daryl takes the time in this message to share on how Jesus chooses us and to expand on six factors that inform the response from our lives. Now, before we jump in, I do want to thank our friends at the Canadian Bible Society who made this episode possible. We want to highlight one of CBS's resources called The Bible Course. It's a course that was created to help the average person engage with God's Word in a deeper way. The Bible Course includes eight weeks of video teaching that are all designed to connect the events, books, and characters of Scripture together into one big story. If your group of friends or small group at church is looking to go deeper into Scripture, consider moving through this course together. To check out the first video for free and to learn more about the course, just head to biblesociety.ca slash thebiblecourse, and you'll find all you need. That's biblesociety.ca slash thebiblecourse. Okay, here's Daryl. Daryl will be preaching on his Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. And it's only printed, the first couple verses are printed, but if you wish to read the whole section, pull out your pew Bible. Romans chapter 12, if you want to follow along. Otherwise, just listen and hear the word of the Lord. And so let's stand together as we read. Romans 12, verses 1 to 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. 
For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is to give, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Living God, we believe that you enabled the Apostle Paul to think out these uh, thoughts and write down these words. And I pray now in your mercy and grace that you would help us live into the reality these words are describing as never before. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a high calling. A very high calling to be called by Jesus Christ into the adventure of discipleship. For the living Jesus to intersect our lives and say to us, come, follow me. It is a very, very high calling. The first disciples, those we read about in the New Testament... We're stunned by this call. For you see, in the first century, rabbis, teachers, wise men did not call people into discipleship. Rather, in the first century, when people wanted to learn from a rabbi or when people wanted to sit at the feet of a wise teacher, they, w- they would shop around, so to speak, checking out all the various possibilities. And then they would approach the teacher, they would approach the wise men and ask to become a disciple. Jesus stunned the first disciples. He does the asking. He does the inviting. He initiates the call. As he made his way through Palestine and Judea and Galilee, as he traveled from village to village and city to city, he would approach people, usually while they were going about their normal activities, and say, come, follow me. Which is why the writers of the four Gospels tell us that nearly every time Jesus did this, people immediately got up and followed. Immediately. Fishermen like Peter and John immediately left their nets and followed. Uh, Tax collectors like Zacchaeus and Matthew immediately left their tables and followed. Women like Mary Magdalene and Susanna and Mary the wife of Clopas immediately rearranged the way they lived their lives so they could follow because they knew a good thing when they heard it. They knew a good deal when they heard it. They knew that they were given an unspeakable privilege. This new rabbi, this new teacher, the one who was bringing the kingdom of God into the world, was initiating this call. They did not go looking for Jesus. Jesus came looking for them. As he would later remind them on the night before he goes to the cross, when they were all gathered together in the upper room, you did not choose me, I chose you. 
and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. John fifteen sixteen. Wow. You did not choose me. I chose you. I did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose me. You did not choose Jesus. You might have thought you did, but he chose you before you chose him. And when we finally realize who Jesus is, we are stunned by just how high a calling he is bestowing on us. There is no greater calling. And someone who understood this is the man Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. Jesus called him in a dramatic way. Saul, then a Pharisee, zealous for the law of God, as he put it, was on his way to the city of Damascus in Syria. He was going there to arrest the followers of Jesus and to put them into prison because Saul wanted to stomp out this Jesus movement that was emerging. Saul judged it to be utterly blasphemous because these people were making claims about a human being that you can only make about the God of Israel. And on his way to Damascus, Jesus, whom Paul thought was dead, intersects Saul's journey, which he has done millions of times since, and called Saul into discipleship. Saul is stunned. That's an understatement. He's overwhelmed by a bright light, but more than that, he's overwhelmed by unexpected love. He's overwhelmed by mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Saul deserved judgment, right? For his violent persecution of the followers of Jesus Christ, he deserved judgment, right? He gets mercy. He gets mercy. Jesus not only does not give to Saul what he deserves, Jesus gives to Saul what he does not deserve. Jesus gives to Saul what he could never deserve. Jesus gives to Saul what none of us could ever deserve. Jesus calls Saul, the persecutor, into relationship with him. Jesus calls Saul to follow. Come, be mine. Wow. So in the text we just read, in his brilliant letter, to the Christians in the capital city of the Roman Empire, Saul, now Paul, Saul, now the apostle of Jesus, Jesus' designated spokesman, I mean, talk about mercy, the persecutor is made into an apostle. The designated representative of Jesus Christ in the world, he now helps us understand what we've gotten ourselves into in being called as a disciple of Jesus. I urge you, he says. Paul does not speak that way very often. Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you. I urge you. I urge you in light of God's mercies. And Paul had experienced mercy upon mercy again and again. Indeed, all 11 chapters of Romans before our text are this great exposition of mercy. I urge you in light of God's mercy to present your bodies, a living sacrifice. <laughs> of course. I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Or better, which is your rational service of worship. Or better yet, literally, which is your logical service of worship. 
The word that Paul uses here is the word logikos, which is related to the word John uses of Jesus, logos. I urge you in light of God's mercy in Jesus Christ to present your bodies, to present your concrete selves as living sacrifices. But of course, what other response can we make to such massive mercy? God has come into the world as one of us. Mercy. And then as one of us has offered himself up on the cross as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. Mercy. Mercy. And then as the one great final sacrifice, giving his life for the life of the world, overcoming the powers of sin and evil and death, and then making it possible for us to live for eternity. Mercy. 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 So, of course, the only rational, logical response to such mercy is to present our lives as living sacrifices. Right? It's the only logical thing to do. Now, better than most of us, Paul understood what this word sacrifices involved. He grew up in the Jewish world and, and he knew the centrality of sacrifices. And, and the picture would be clear in his mind. He saw it in the Old Testament sacrifices. He saw it as Jesus sacrificed himself up on the cross. The picture is that of laying our bodies on the altar. Laying our whole selves on the altar holy and pleasing to God. Living, not dead. God is not pleased with dead sacrifices. Besides, the only dead sacrifice that need to be offered has been offered once for all. Yes, disciples of Jesus might die as we lay our lives down as living sacrifices, but that's not what God is up to in this. Living sacrifices... Alive, alive in Jesus, alive in the Holy Spirit, alive in the kingdom of God, alive as never before. Jesus has offered up his body for us. And the only logical thing to do is to offer up our bodies in response as living, mercy-ized human beings. Living because we are being transformed. As Paul says, by mercy, we are being transformed by the renewal of our minds and living because we are thereby discovering that as disciples, as living sacrifices, we have been graced. Oh, have we been graced and we've been graced for participation with God. We've been graced for participation in the life of God and we've been graced for participation in the mission of God. As living sacrifices, oh, as living sacrifices, we get to participate in the life of God as Trinity. Come, follow me, is the call to enter into the inner life of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What greater calling can you imagine? You actually get to join God in his inner life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I commend to you a new book on the Trinity by Michael Reeves of the UK. It's entitled, Delighting in the Trinity, An Introduction to the Christian Life. I've been wanting to update my little book, Experiencing the Trinity. I don't need to update it. This is the best thing you can read. He, this is so winsome, so engaging. It's the best thing for understanding God and therefore the gospel. The call to discipleship is the incomprehensibly high call to go into the very life of God. And 
we get to participate in the mission of God in the world. Come, follow me is the call to join the Trinity in the Trinity's work in the world. I mean, talk about meaning and purpose and value. Talk about significance. I commend to you another new book by my good friend Ross Hastings. It's entitled Missional God, Missional Church. In my endorsement of the book, I wrote, this is a game changer. Because Ross Hastings has done the best job that I know, and I read a lot. This is the best job on understanding God's mission in the world. And to follow Jesus Christ as, is, is to be called into joining God in this missional enterprise in the world. It's a high calling. Now, this is why, after urging us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, Paul goes on to speak of gifts of grace. He goes on to speak of the gifting that Jesus Christ has given to his people, to his church. Paul declares the wonder of mercy that each of us, as living sacrifices, has been given grace, unique grace, to be able to join Jesus in his ministry in unique ways. Now, this grace does not simply come upon us and rest on us. This grace is built into us. Every one of us has been wired by God to live in God and to work with God in unique ways. And I I use this word wired because these various giftings and these various graces are deeply ingrained in us. They become constitutive of our very being. They determine everything about us. They they shape the way we relate to people, the way we relate to God, and they shape how we are motivated 24-7-365. Each of us has been wired in at least one of seven ways. And we looked at these seven ways three weeks ago. And so I'm not going to walk through them again. You can access that material on the website. But what we emphasized then was that each disciple, each living sacrifice, every one of us is wired to participate in the mission of God in the world. Some of us prophetically, others of us wired for hands-on service. Some to teach, some to exhort and to encourage, some to lead, some to give in extravagant ways, and some to show mercy. Now, which of these wirings is most godly? Which of these is most like Jesus? Answer? All of them. All of them. them. And as I suggested three weeks ago, conflict in the body of Christ comes when one wiring demands that all the other members of the body operate according to their wiring. All the wirings... All of these deeply ingrained spiritual motivations are holy and pleasing to God. None of them can operate without the other because we're all living sacrifices together. The whole body grows up and matures as each of us embraces and exercises that unique wiring. The city gets blessed as each of us embraces and exercises that unique wiring. Now on Main Street, near where Sharon and I live, There's an art studio, and in the window of the art studio, there is a plaque with the words of Pablo Picasso in it. And I I walk by them probably five days a week. And the sign says, the meaning of life is to discover your gift. I like that. 
The meaning of life is to discover your gift, to discover how you are uniquely wired. But Picasso doesn't leave it at that. He adds a line. This is the whole quote. The meaning of your life is to discover your gift. The purpose of your life is to give it away. Of course. Of course. To discover the gift that God has given you and then to give it away. Because we are given grace, we are given mercy, not just for ourselves, but for others, for the city, for the world. Come follow me. It's an invitation to enter into the triune life of God, and it's the invitation to enter into the triune mission of God. What a calling. Now, since we worked through uh, these seven wirings three weeks ago, many of you have asked for some more help in discerning Jesus' unique call upon your life. You've asked me, can you say more about Jesus' unique call in my life? And and yes, I can. I'm going to take a few more minutes and now go a little bit deeper, okay? Over the years, I've studied all the places in the Bible where God calls a human being to join God in his mission. And I think, I, I, I think of Abraham and Sarah, for instance. Uh, Abraham is 80 years old. Sarah's 70. When out of the blue, God calls this couple to leave everything they've understood. Can you imagine that? Leave home, community, career, family, and head off to a land that God will in due time make clear. God says in Genesis 12 that I'm calling you and I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. Indeed, he says to this couple, in you, all the world is going to be blessed. I think of the call on Moses. If I know the data correctly, Moses is called when he's 80 years old. Apparently, apparently, the living God loves to intersect the lives of elderly and call them to a new calling. Moses is in the desert in self-imposed exile. God meets him at a burning bush and tells him to go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the most powerful ruler in the world at that time. And he's to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let the Hebrew slaves who are undergirding your economy go. And God calls Moses then to lead hundreds of thousands of people across the desert to the border of the new land. I'm reminded of a story told about the Moses call. God comes to Moses and says, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? Moses says, I'll take the good news. The good news is I've come to set my people free and lead them across the desert. He says, what's the bad news? You have to write the environmental impact study. (laughs) I think of David. The call on David. He's the youngest of the family. He is the smallest of the family. He's living as a shepherd and God calls him out of the obscurity that he chose for his life and to become the king of Israel. I think of Deborah. I think of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. (laughs) Jeremiah is called to speak the word of God for like 30 plus years to the people of God who don't want to hear him. (laughs) I think of Peter and Lydia and Phoebe. I think of Paul, the Jew called to go to the Gentiles with the good news of the Jewish Messiah. Now, as I've studied all of these call narratives, I think I've discerned in them six common factors. 
in different situations, different people, different challenges, but six common factors to all of these callings. And I think they go together in three couplets. So look at the little diagram that I printed for you in the order of worship. I think it's also going to be on the PowerPoint. Think of these six factors put together in a triangle. In each corner, there is this couplet. Factor one and four together, factor two and five are together, factor three and six are together. Now, actually, they are in tension with each other. Factor one is in tension with factor four, factor two in tension with factor five, factor three in tension with factor six. And we discover God's calling on our lives by looking at the factors on the outside of the triangle, one, two, and three, but I'll submit to you that the clarity of the call will come on the inside of the triangle in factors four, five, and six. So let me just show you what I mean. Factor one, awareness of need. That makes sense, does it not? We're going to know God's call on our lives in the context of human need. The need for justice, the need for peace, the need for compassion, people caught in tragedies, people caught in oppression, people who are sick, people who are hungry, children who are abandoned, children who are abused, businesses floundering, marriages hurting, political leaders disoriented and overwhelmed, churches that are struggling, disturbing climate change. On it goes, God's call comes in the context of our awareness of human need. Factor two, appropriate giftedness. And this makes sense too, does it not? We discover that we've been uniquely gifted to respond to particular need. Our wiring draws us to a particular need amidst all the needs of the world. Now, I tried to illustrate that in the cookie story three weeks ago. We all respond to the same crisis differently because the gifts we've given help us want to meet different gifts. So the call is going to come in concert with how we're gifted. Factor three, the affirmation of the body of Christ. And this makes sense too, does it not? That this call is going to be confirmed by other disciples. People say to us, yes. Yes, you are gifted to meet that need. God has given you all the grace for you to step into that need. So go for it. So that's the outside of the triangle. And I think that's pretty obvious. Now consider the inside of the triangle. Factor number four. It's in tension with factor number one. And I call it fire in the bones. Of all the need that we could respond to, There is fire in the bones for particular need. Particular need ignites the fire in the bone. Or if you'd rather, particular need pulls at the soul. Or the particular need weighs heavily on the mind. Or the particular need burdens the heart. Whether it's fire, pull, weigh, burden. Of all the need around us, something particular grabs hold of us. Uh, For some, it is the plight of children. For some, it is people in prison. For some, it is mental illness issues. For others, it is people caught by drugs. For others, it's for people out of work. Still others, it's the scourge of human trafficking. For others, it's the forgotten elderly. For others, it's the wealthy and successful people in the high-rises who live profoundly empty lives. For others, it's the crisis in the environment. And for others, it's the structural integrity of highway bridges. 
Now, Jesus calls us to participate in his mission. His mission is as broad as that. In fact, it's much more broad than that. And he calls us to participate by igniting fire in our bones for particular need. So I ask, where's the fire in your bones? What pulls at your soul the most? Can you shout out some of the answers so we can hear the variety? What, what pull, what, where's the fire in your bones? Just name it. Human trafficking. Orphans. Welfare. Oh, animal welfare. Bless you. What's this? Corporations? Prison ministry. The lonely. The hungry. Those under persecution. Wow. Okay, so the question is, which of these fire in the bones is most godly? Which is most like Jesus? All of them. All of them. We've been wired differently to address different needs. For me, the fire in the bones is for young preachers who need mentoring. The fire in my bones is for political leaders who feel all alone and who need a friend behind the scenes. No one would know these leaders have this friend. Someone who can help them understand how the Holy Spirit guides history. Someone who can help them understand how the kingdom of God works in the political realm. Factor number six. Yes, I am going out of order. Factor number six is in tension with number three. Go it alone if need be. Intention with the affirmation of the body of Christ is this deep sense that even if the body does not affirm us, we have to go alone. Now, this is a bit dicey and a bit dangerous to say because, boy, can our egos play havoc here. But I find this factor in all the call narratives. Can you imagine how Abraham and Sarah's family responded when they shared what they thought God was calling them to do? You're going to do what at your age? You're going where? We don't know. And what about us you're leaving behind? We do know how David's family responded. No way. He's the youngest. He's the smallest. Paul had to regularly keep going in all kinds of situations, called with a sense of call that others didn't affirm. Jesus actually warned his first disciples that this could happen to us, that his call was going to take precedence over the call of every other human being, including mothers and fathers. Now, the good news is that usually there is someone in the body of Christ who affirms this call. But there may be a time when it feels like we have to go it alone. Deep inside we know we have to do it. There's an old hymn with the line, Though none go with me, yet I will follow. Where is that place in your heart? You don't want to go alone. But you know you just might have to. Now, factor number five. 
It's intention, in, intention with number two. Ready? A profound sense of inadequacy. What? Yes. Intention with having been appropriately gifted with gifts of the Spirit is a profound sense of inadequacy. Moses says to God, I don't know how to speak well in public. How can I go to the most powerful human being on the face of the globe and speak your word to him? Moses is not lying. Moses is not trying to weasel out of the call. I've seen that teaching. He's just trying to get out of it. He's not trying to get out of it. He's telling the truth. He does not feel adequate for it. And we would look at Moses and we'd say, like Moses, look at you. You've been given a first-rate education in Egypt. You've been trained in all the rhetoric of Egypt. Of all people, you are the best person to go to the most powerful in the world. But still, Moses feels profoundly inadequate. Jeremiah, I'm just a youth. Why send me? Daniel, I'm going to go and... I'm going to go and interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. I don't even know the dream. How can I interpret what I don't know? And Paul... Who is adequate for these things? In his second letter to the, Coloss- to the, to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 16, who is adequate for these things? Paul is developing the new covenant ministry, a glorious ministry. The veil being lifted from people's eyes as they read the Bible and discover who Jesus is. Lives being transformed from glory to glory. Perseverance under trial, not buckling under persecution, keeping the faith in the dark. Who is adequate for these things, Paul asks. Paul is not suffering from a poor self-image. And he's not being falsely humble. He actually feels inadequate for God's call in his life. And we would look at Paul and we'd say, wait a minute, Paul, you are probably one of the most gifted human beings ever to live. You're certainly one of the most gifted disciples of Jesus Christ. How can you possibly feel inadequate? You are clearly, clearly the right person to go. Are you inadequate? And Paul says, yes. Wonderfully gifted and profoundly inadequate. They go together in tension. Why? Why the coupling of having been given the gifts of the Holy Spirit, hardwired for participation, why couple that with a profound sense of inadequacy? Why? Because we are called to participate in God's mission. That is, we are called to participate in what God is doing. And we are not God. We cannot do What God does, and yet God is calling us to do what he does. It seems that God delights to call the disciples of Jesus into a work they cannot do on their own. The Holy Spirit gifts us for it, no doubt about that. But we cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. I mean, the giftings of the Spirit are, after all, the giftings of the Spirit. They're His ability. They're His capacity. They're His energy. And unless the Holy Spirit shows up, none of us can exercise those gifts. Am I making sense? And have you experienced that? People will say to me, you know, I'm thinking that God wants me to do X, Y, Z, but I don't feel adequate for it. You've just been called. Seriously. 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 
One Sunday night I was wrestling with all this and particularly wrestling with my own profound sense of adequacy for the call of God on my life. And I heard in my head, Daryl, I did not call you because you were competent. I called you because you are willing to admit your desperate need of me. That's why I'm in this role. I can't do this. I can't do this. Unless God shows up. Now, does this mean that if we sense a call and we do not feel inadequate, it's not Jesus' call? If we sense a call and we do feel adequate for it, does this mean this is not Jesus' call? No, not necessarily so. But it could mean, it could mean that we are settling for less than God's highest calling. Hear the word of Jesus to you and to me today. Come. Come follow me. (laughs) Who else would you want to follow, he'll say. Come. You did not choose me. I chose you. Come. Present your body a living sacrifice. It's the only logical thing to do in response to the mercy of God. Come, participate with me in my life with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Come, participate in what we are doing in the world. Join me at the place where you may have to go it alone. Where the fire burns in your soul. And where you feel profoundly inadequate. What a high calling. Oh, dear God. Dear God, it's unbelievable that you, the creator, sustainer, redeemer of all things, choose to call us into intimate relationship with you. More than relationship, you call us into your very life. And to think that you call us mere human beings to now participate in your grand enterprise in the world. This is, this is, this this is wonderful. I pray, dear God, for our own sake, for our own joy, and for the sake of the church, and for the sake of the city, I pray that you would release in every one of us a deep owning of your high calling. And this we pray for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.